This is the Anthem CDA podcast, a church in the heart of downtown Coeur d'Alene. Join us as we seek the presence of God, learn from his word, and build lifelong connections. We hope this week's teaching brings life and encouragement. Welcome to Anthem. You guys doing okay? All right. Awesome. Um, I'm going to ask you guys while you're getting your seats. Love you. Um, open up to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Specifically, we're going to be in verses 16 through 20 this morning. Did you guys come prepared for this this morning? No gray skies are going to stop us, right? So, again, the main text we'll be in this morning is verses 16 through 20. Before we get to verse 16, let me give you a brief summary. Like, Dan killed it last week talking about the kingdom of God, didn't he? Like, thank you, Dan, for your teaching last week. Um, But to recap a little bit of where we've been in the book of Mark, how we kind of catch up with today, um, Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. We see him spend time in the wilderness. We see him be tested by Satan. Then we see him officially begin this public ministry, which brings us to verse 16. And as he starts his ministry, one of the things that he does is begin to build a team, like recruiting these disciples, these followers to himself. And so here's what the text says in Mark 1, verses 16 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, open it up, and we'll have it on the screen. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, for they were fishermen, not fishers of men, soon to be. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and, left, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Anybody read this story before? All right, cool. Some of you have read the Bible. It's amazing. Um, you'll notice with Mark in his gospel that he loves this word immediately. There's a sense of urgency that he has. He uses this word immediately almost 40 times in his writing. And he, say, he seems to love this idea of urgency and expediency. And he, so he jumps from story to story, story to story, immediately going from one scene to the next. And it's pretty fast-paced. But in this section, Jesus goes to these fishermen, Peter and Andrew, and he calls them to follow him. And immediately they drop their nets And they follow him, which doesn't seem like much to us. We're like, oh, cool, they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. We'll get to that in a little bit. Then immediately he goes to John and James. And he says the same thing to them. And they drop their nets and they follow him. And mind you, they're not dropping, just dropping their nets, but they're also leaving their dad, right? Peace, we're out of here. Like, you can be with the hired servants sitting in the boat, finishing fishing. We're moving on. And so I want to slow down a bit because Mark's flying through these details, but I want to take a look at at this huge decision that's being made. Like it's a small detail, but a massive decision. So they're fishermen by trade, that's their livelihood. And and we know that uh, with James and John specifically, not only is it their livelihood, it's also their family business. And so they've been following in the footsteps of their earthly father, this guy Zebedee that we hear of. They've been following, following in his footsteps, and this is a big deal. So think about this for a moment. For those of you who are like in your careers right now, those of you that have established careers, 
whether you're early in your career or maybe you're further along in, career, in your career, it was no small task to figure out what you were going to do with your life. Some of you are still trying to figure that out, right? Some of us. Like, I'm still wondering what the heck the Lord has for my life. But maybe that took some soul searching. Maybe for you it took some exploration. Maybe it took some education. Maybe it took some training for you. Maybe it was interviews. Maybe it was asking around about this career that you had some interest in. But it took work. And so you made this decision to enter into this career in your life. Now, if I gave you a week's time, would you be able to leave your career that you're in by the end of this week? Some of you are like, oh yeah, Jesus, amen, I'm out of there. Like, I do not want to do this anymore. Some of you don't necessarily feel that way. Some of you are like, I don't know how I could leave my career by the end of this week. In a week's time, it'd be really difficult. It's not a small decision to do this. Well, these guys, these fishermen, don't leave their career by the end of the week. They don't even leave their career by the end of the day. They drop their nets and they leave their career by the end of the conversation. Like they run after Jesus. They leave it all behind, they run after him. And it took two simple words to get them to leave behind everything to come after Jesus. What were those words? Follow me are the words. And they're like, all right, new career, sweet. Like anybody else want to follow Jesus this morning? You might not want to in a little while. But to just show you like how even more radical this whole situation is, Jesus is this guy who's just starting his ministry. And so they probably don't even know a lot about this rabbi Jesus. They don't know a ton about him. They don't know necessarily that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God. They've heard spatterings of these things. They've heard some like, like people talking about this, but he has no resume. He's got no track record. All they've heard at this point is word of mouth about this man, Jesus. And yet my question is, why do they immediately drop their nets and follow this man? And not just leave that, but they leave their father in this boat to continue on with the family business, to follow Jesus. Well, here's where some insight from the Jewish culture and tradition might be helpful for us in understanding this. Um, a young Jewish child uh, would have like a bit of a journey marked out for them, right? At the, about the age of four or five, they would start primary school, which was actually called Bet Sefer. And Bet Sefer means the house of the book, and in primary school for them, they started learning and they started writing the Torah. And so the Torah is what we refer to as the first five books of the Old Testament. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would begin to learn the book. So for them, it, it, it was just this Jewish scriptures, right? It was the first five books. They would immerse themselves in it from a very young age. And so they start learning and memorizing the Torah. But then as they begin to get older, those who stick with their studies might begin to enter what's called Bet Midrash. And Bet Midrash means house of study. And so it's one step further from house of the book. Now they may move into house of study. And this is where they'll begin to actually study beyond the Torah. So they'll start studying the Jewish prophets. They'll start studying the law, some of the oral traditions. They'll study rabbinical teachings called the Mishnah. Uh, and then when they come to the age of 12 or 13, for the boys, maybe some of you are familiar with this, they would have what's called a bar mitzvah. And, and this bar mitzvah means, bar mitzvah means son of the commandments. And so that, that, that means that this boy who studied the laws is now coming to an age in his life 
um, where he's coming into his own. Like he's accountable before God for himself. And so the parents are no longer responsible for his actions because now he's going to live a life in adherence to the Jewish law. But the best of the best students who continue on in their studies, even past this, get into their teens and their young adult years, and they would try to find and pursue a rabbi. They would want to learn from a rabbi, a a respectable teacher in Judaism. They would want to know them, follow them, learn their ways. And so they would want to follow this rabbi. And so kind of like choosing what kind of college you would go to, in the Jewish culture, they would choose what rabbi they wanted to study under. Which one am I going to align myself with and learn from? And so they would ask if they could be the rabbi's Talmud, is the word, Talmud, which means disciple or follower. Um, The the plural for this is Talmudim, like a group of disciples. And so uh, they're learning from a rabbi, and if the rabbi didn't feel that they were worthy to follow him, like they just didn't have what it takes, the rabbi would reject them. He would actually decline their request to follow him, And they would, at that point, these Jewish boys, these young men, would have to figure out at this point what in the heck they were going to do with their life. So they would often now go find trades. So fishing, like, oh, that's a family business. I'll go fish now um, because I wasn't necessarily accepted to follow in the steps of a rabbi. So I'll go find something else that I need to do. I need to find another career path. And so if the rabbi accepted you, the rabbi would actually invite you to follow him. And so these two words were like the greatest acceptance letter you could ever receive. Follow me. Like there's a lot of substance in these words. And so if that was you and you were accepted, there'd be the saying that they would use. Like traditionally they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Um, And so what in the world does that mean? Like covered in the dust of my rabbi. Well, this comes from an oral tradition, otherwise known as Jewish, the Mishnah which is a collection of these oral teachings, these oral laws that actually supplemented some of the scriptural laws. And so one of these oral traditions said that students, these disciples, the Talmud, would sit in the dust of their rabbis, right? And it gave this picture of the student wanting to be everything his rabbi was, wanting to emulate his rabbi, to learn from him, to receive all his teachings, to walk like his rabbi. And so the rabbi would walk through town and through these dirt roads, and as his sandals are kicking up dust, you're following so closely behind them that you're getting caked in the dust of your rabbi. This is what that meant. And so when the rabbi decided to stop in a particular place, the disciples would sit at the feet and just learn at their feet and learn to hang on to every word that this rabbi would share. They wanted to know everything about them to learn their ways. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbis. And so that was this aspiration for many of the Jewish young men. So if you were called to follow a rabbi, you would be taking their set of rules, you would be taking their teachings upon you with the idea that one day you would begin to perpetuate their ideas and their teachings to future generations. You yourself would become a rabbi. You would teach them. And so a rabbi's set of teachings in that day was called their yoke. And this is interesting. This is what Jesus was talking about. You guys all know this verse, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the interesting thing about this passage is that it wasn't just referring to like the yoke of an oxen being in the yoke with Jesus per se, although we've all heard it taught like that before, right? 
But the rabbis of Jesus' day would would put a heavy yoke, a heavy burden upon these men. And they didn't help them lift that burden. It was just like, here's a bunch of law, do all of these things, and it was heavy, and it weighed them down. And Jesus was offering to not just put a burden of legalism on you that you can't carry, but his promises that he would put his yoke on you, that his yoke was actually easy, that we aren't called to take on another rabbi's stressful, unattainable yoke. We were to take on the yoke of Jesus. And so here's Jesus in Mark chapter 1. These fishermen are fishing. Jesus comes along and he says two words. He says, follow me. And so it shouldn't shock us that immediately they drop their nets, even leaving their father in the boat in order to follow Jesus. And understand that at this point in their life, they're not rabbis, right? They're fishermen. They didn't make the cut. So they became fishermen. And I think it's safe to assume that maybe they had aspired to be somebody's Talmudim. But they'd been rejected. And so think of, of their level of excitement as this man begins to call them out to follow after him. They've been longing to be accepted as someone's Talmudim. And so they drop it and they follow Jesus. I mean, this is why their dad can just stay in the boat and do what he's doing. Because their dad understands, my kids are actually being called to follow somebody. Like, I thought they were, were rejected and they were just going to have to resort to a life of fishing But instead, somebody's calling them to follow after him. And so they've been longing to be accepted. And so Jesus says these words, follow me. But that's not all that Jesus says. He says, if you follow me, what's he say? I will make you fishers of men. Why in the world would Jesus say that? Like, what does that mean? Well, he's he's taking what they're used to, and he's giving them a bit of an object lesson, right? He's saying, instead of you catching fish for a living, I'm going to give you a new purpose. You're you're going to actually be capturing the hearts of men and women. You're going to be winning souls for this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. He's saying, follow me. But I want to correct something that we often overlook in this passage because he doesn't say, I will make you fishers of men. That's not actually what it says. What did he say? Look at 17 again. He says, I will make you what? Become fishers of men. I'm going to make you ministers of the gospel. And it's interesting that so many things in the story happen immediately, right? It's like bam, 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 immediately, immediately, immediately. But this one thing does not happen right on the dot. Because the process of becoming is actually a process that doesn't happen overnight. It's something that happens over a period of time, he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Now, I want you to just take a moment and acknowledge something. that What Jesus is doing here is so disruptive. So disruptive in this culture. It's so disruptive to these men who have picked up their family business and are now leaving it behind to do something different. And it disrupts not only the way, like what they're doing in this moment, But it actually disrupts their future trajectory, the outlook for their life. It totally messes with them. And to to those of you who have decided to follow Jesus, know this, that following Jesus is disruptive. It will mess with your life. And I wonder what that disruption looks like for each of us this morning. You see, Jesus doesn't just come alongside our way of, of our life. Jesus actually provides a new way and we integrate our life into his. 
We don't add Jesus to our life. He doesn't integrate into our life in our way. We begin to form our life around him. Uh, many of you know that I traveled the world for a period of years, over a decade, with a bunch of skateboarders, um, and it was a totally different way of life, right? Like, understand, none of us had common college degrees. Um, I had an amazing bachelor's degree in pastoral ministry, which doesn't get you much in this world, you know? Just doesn't go very far. Um, I was freshly out of college, 23 years old, when we started traveling with a group of kids that were like 16 to 20 at the time. Um, kids who had abandoned like sort of a normal trajectory of life out of high school uh, in order to pursue Jesus, to share him with the world, using this talent that God had given them uh, to share the gospel with others. And it was this really unique situation. But I remember those days really fondly because I believe that they may have been, have been some of the most formative discipleship years of my life, honestly. A 23-year-old with a bunch of other kids traveling around the country with skateboards, um, trying to keep cats in a van and a lot of Denny's food in our stomachs. But so often in the van, the discussions that would happen in the van, and just to be crass, were discussions about pornography and sometimes about masturbation and sometimes about what it meant to follow Jesus and what careers look like. And they got into these deep discussions that, I mean, we're driving 20 hours from city to city sometimes. And it was like so cool to hear these discussions happen in this van because I, oftentimes people said, it's so cool that you got the season where you guys were like evangelists. And I often re, like look back on those days and I think like, Evangelism was just sort of an overflow of something God was already doing in the van. Like, it, discipleship was, was happening in us, through us, and the overflow of that is evangelism. Like, we often as a church want to place evangelism as this really important thing. So we're just gonna go reach people for Jesus. Well, why would we go reach people for Jesus when us ourselves are not following him to begin with? And, and so the, the goal isn't just about reaching the lost. The goal is like, us being transformed and renewed. That through us being transformed and renewed, evangelism happens. It's something that's natural that happens for us, through us. And so it was this unique situation. Um, and we had this phrase that we often use in the van, and there's probably a handful of guys in this room this morning that were um, in that van with us during that season. But most often we used it on days where we got up early, we'd been traveling all night long, um, maybe we were like reading the Bible in the van. Uh, nobody was really making any money. We were reminded that all our peers were pursuing careers and making money and having careers and buying houses and living a totally different life than we were. And, um, and we would often say to each other, COD. And it was cost of discipleship. Like it was just a phrase that we threw around. There was a season where we would, we studied Wayne Grudem's systematic the theology together. And every time we'd open up that book, we'd say COD, you know, this is the cost of discipleship. Like we're learning how to follow Jesus, but it's costing us something. Because an inherent part of discipleship is leaving behind something in order to pursue Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so for Jesus' disciples, this Talmud, the Talmudim, they embraced disruption, right? And why? Because for them, they believed in their hearts that discipleship, that following after this rabbi would lead to a much better life than the one that they were currently living. That was their conviction that they held. That's why they could drop things so easily, right? And so for you who have decided to follow Christ, how might your followership of Jesus disrupt your life? 
That's the question we should ask. Maybe for some of you in this room, it's a career change. Maybe for some of you, it's leaving a relationship. I'm not saying a divorce, okay? This is for those of you that are not married. Um, Maybe it's a relationship that you're in. In order to better grow in your relationship, your followership of Jesus. Maybe it's repenting from a routine that you've been living in in your life for way too long. We all get in those. And and you realize that, that you need to follow Jesus and be covered in the dust of your rabbi to do what he did. And so maybe it's being rejected by a relative because of a decision that you made to follow Jesus or or a group of friends because you chose to follow Christ. Maybe it's battling an addiction that's controlled your life for way too long. Maybe it's simply forming your life around Jesus and putting rhythms in place in your life that will actually keep you close to your rabbi but disrupt your everyday routine. Because now somehow prayer and God's word and silence and solitude and fasting and serving and and Sabbath and all these things become these things that you begin to bring into your life that disrupts your normal pattern of life and everybody else's pattern of life that, that you live around. And so whatever it is, discipleship actually has to be something that that disrupts our life. And I pray that, like the disciples, you would embrace the disruption and see that this leads to a much more physically, spiritually, and emotionally holistic life. And so he says, I will make you become. It doesn't happen immediately. It's not something that happens overnight. But it's a promise. And actually for Uh, a Talmud to follow a rabbi, it was often a three-year process. And so it's interesting that how long is Jesus on this earth with his disciples? Three years. There's so many cool overlays in in Jesus' story. And so three years, they're, they're following in the dust of the rabbi to learn after him so that when he departs, they begin to put into practice the things that he taught them to do. They literally become the hands and the feet of Jesus to this world. But it's a process. And so how would these men have understood Jesus' request to follow him? I mean, if a teacher or leader said this to us today, we would hardly leave our careers and spend the night and the day with these leaders, right? (laughs) Like no coach or CEO or spiritual leader after like inviting somebody to follow them expects you to pack a bag and a sleeping bag and says, come with me. You'd be like, you're sketchy. You know, like, no thank you. That sounds super weird. But this is exactly how the disciples perceived the call that Jesus was giving them. I'm going to leave it all behind, pack my bags, and I'm giving myself to a new way of life. Because in those days, to be a disciple of a rabbi meant you would do three things, right? And many different authors and pastors throughout history have talked about these three things in different ways. But to sum them up, the gist is like be with the rabbi, imitate the rabbi, do what the rabbi did. Dallas Willard said this, he said, Jesus does not call us to do what he did, but to be as he was, permeated with love. Then the doing of what he did and said becomes the natural expression of who we are in him. The idea of having faith in Jesus has come to be totally isolated from being his apprentice and learning how to do what he said. Same thing we talked about before. Like, you have to be changed and transformed by it before you go do something with it. But we live in an American church world that tells us to go do the things with actually, without actually ever being with Jesus ourselves. We actually miss the gold. Like, the best part of it all is to learn to be with him. And the overflow of being with him is that you begin to be like him, to do what he did. 
And so discipleship and being Jesus' Talmudim was training. It was discipleship, followership. It was like apprenticeship, like the, where, where the methodologies and the skills and the thoughts of the master that you're following actually became the student's ways. They became like the rabbi, and this is the invitation that Jesus gave them. And so I want you to consider three things, right? Be with Jesus. First, we're called to be with him. This is exactly what the first disciples did. They followed Jesus everywhere. They traveled with him. They listened to his teachings. They watched his miracles. They talked with him. They dined with him. They prayed with him. There's something about this that's so appealing to me. I mean, we live in a totally frantic world, a chaotic world. And time is this precious commodity, and it feels like we barely have any of it, right? Like, we just don't have enough time for anything these days. And I know it's not uncommon for me to go weeks or months without real contact with some of my closest friends. That can happen. And life is like an all-consuming like ball of fire. And what it consumes most is our time. It robs us of that. And but we see, what we see in the disciples are these men who broke away and they begin to give their time to Jesus, like tons of time. And it just sounds amazing to me, like the things which competed for their time and energy were actually ne neglected in order to follow Jesus and to place that time in the hands of Christ. And so today we're also called to be with Jesus. This will require an understanding of the spiritual dimension for you and I because you have to walk by faith and not by sight if you want to spend time with Jesus today. He's no longer here in the flesh. Like we can't touch him and see him physically like the disciples were able to do. We can't sit by the campfire and listen to Jesus talk. We can't actually be in his dust as they were. But instead, like we do have opportunities at prayer and silence and solitude and reading and fasting and like study and Sabbath. Like we have these opportunities to get to know him, to spend time with him. And we have to, like in a very real way, sense his closeness when we open up our Bibles and when we open up our mouths in prayer, that we sense that he is the one speaking to us and through us. And that we actually have to set time aside, disrupt our lives disrupt our days and our weeks to actually simply be with Jesus. The second thing is that we have to imitate him. We're called to imitate him. Have you ever had mannerisms that you've adopted from somebody else? Anybody? I'm the only weird one in the room. Um, I've been biting my fingernails since I was six. Like horribly biting my nails. Like they, my, my nails were so nasty. I could never be a hand model unless it's like some sketchy commercial, right? But... <clears throat> my oldest son, at a very young age, started ripping his nails to shred. And I'd be like, stop. He's like, but you do it. I'm like, ugh. Like, I learned it by watching you. You guys remember that commercial from the 80s? <laughs> what a funny. Uh, but he developed my mannerisms. Like, and then you sit there as a dad, you're like, how? Like, I never sat you down and said, Okay, I want you to put that finger in your mouth, and I want you to rip that white thing off and chew on. Like, I never said that, but he watched me. He learned my ways. Like, even our bad habits are rubbing off on other people. But this is also how we develop good practices in our life, right? Good rhythms in our life. Like, as followers of Jesus, the first disciples watched his life 
with this goal of imitating what he did, sitting at his feet, watching everything he said, listening to everything he said, watching everything he did, and beginning to put those things in place. Like they, they imitated the life of the rabbi. They imitated his attitude towards money. They imitated, they imitated the way he talked about the Bible, the way he talked about the scriptures, the way he treated the sick. Like his attitudes became their attitudes. They, they watched the way he forgave. They watched his meekness and his humility. They watched how he interacted with women. They watched him stand up to religiosity and to oppressive worldviews, right? They, they saw him pray and fast and extend mercy to others. They sought to imitate every way of Jesus' life. And so when he taught about the Good Samaritan, it's so interesting because they would have immediately thought Jesus was probably most like the Samaritan. <laughs> they, they, they knew he was the bullseye that they needed to direct their lives at. And so it wasn't just as disciples that were called to imitate Jesus. We too are called to imitate Jesus. When, when we see Jesus walking in step with his father, it means that we're meant to be a people in constant relationship with our father. When we witness Jesus' compassion and his mercy, it means that our inner attitudes actually have to give way to his ways. We're to weep for the world as Jesus wept for the world. When we see his hunger and his thirst for holiness and for righteousness combined with like his utter disgust for hypocrisy, like we too should pursue a consistency between our beliefs and our lifestyle. Like we have to follow his ways. Third, do what he did. And this was the process that, that these ancient disciples went through. They would be with the rabbi. They would imitate him. They would take on the things that he did. And then they would go out and they would begin to replicate his life and his work and his example. And isn't that exactly what the disciples of Christ did? They begin to take that on. Like after Jesus leaves, he dies, he resurrects, he ascends up to heaven they begin to actually join Jesus on his mission on this earth. They let their lives become little replicas of Jesus's. They go out and they preach the kingdom. They, they make it their aim to reach the lost. They help the sick and the hurting. They even went out and demonstrated power over the demonic realm. They cast out demons, like just like Jesus. Like everywhere that the disenfranchised were, his disciples were. Like everywhere that hurting people existed, the church went. It's like, just like water always finds its way to the lowest point, right? These original disciples of Jesus found the places and the people that were thirsty for the message of Jesus. We are called to this life. We're called to launch out into ministry with Jesus. And for a rare few, it might even be their full-time work. But for the vast majority of us in this room this morning, we're to live the disciple life in our careers, in our families, in our friendships, in our communities. We're meant to go out and help hurting children, to serve the sick, to minister to the forgotten, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to everybody. Like we're meant to fish for people, to expand the kingdom of God. And the problem is that we have somehow allowed ourselves to divorce the word disciple from the word Christian. We often identify ourselves as Christians. We would say, like, I'm a Christian. And, and this is fine, even though I think that word, like, lacks a ton of depth these days. I actually don't like referring to myself as a Christian. And not because I'm not a Christian, but because it just lacks depth these days. It doesn't, 
it's not chalked up to followership of Jesus. It's chalked up to somebody who has raised their hand to make a decision, and their life doesn't actually begin to reflect Jesus. It's just a statement that they made in a church that they go to, and that's it. And in Scripture, the church is rarely referred to as Christian. Instead, the Bible often refers to Jesus' followers as disciples. And there's something active about that. Like, we're to be Jesus' apprentices. We're meant to sit at Jesus' feet. We're meant to learn his ways. We're meant to go out into the world by the power of Christ and imitate Jesus. And so with this perspective, it's easy to come to the conclusion that what the world needs is not more Christians, but more disciples. We don't need more Christians. We need more people that are actually following Jesus, more followers of Jesus who have actually been with him and imitated him and have a desire to do the things he said, like to to put those practices into place in our life. And there's a multitude of benefits of following Jesus, but I want you to think about three of them this morning. One is significance. Like our world struggles to find meaning in life. The world is constantly trying to find purpose. And if we're just like merely accidents, then what is the point to life? Jesus came along and he asked these fishermen to leave their business and to follow him so that they could become fishers of men. He gave their lives meaning and he gave their lives significance by giving them a chance to participate into inviting people into the kingdom of God. Two, he gave their lives direction. Like if you open up Twitter these days, Instagram, Facebook, you open it up for a few minutes and you're going to be bombarded with countless options on how you should live your life. Tons of people telling you how you should do it. Parents, professors, friends, colleagues, they all seem to have their own take on how it is that you need to live your life. And the options in that seem endless for us these days. There's just so many. Get a coach for this, coach for that, like whatever it is. These people are going to tell us how to live our life and help us find value and meaning. I find that very stressful, to be honest. I'm like, which one should I listen to? There's so many voices out there today. But Jesus comes along and Jesus breaks through all the confusion, all the noise, and Jesus simply says, follow me. Don't follow yourself. Don't follow others. Don't follow society. I want you to follow me. And to me, when I hear that, like the weight and the pressure of life just rolls off my back because I know that I don't need to just be like somebody else. I need to be like Jesus. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus think? How how does Jesus want me to build my life? Because many of us have waited our whole lives for someone to come along and say this. Like, this is how you should do your life. We've been waiting for them to tell us how to do it. And here's Jesus, and he gives you clear direction. He says, follow me. The third thing is this, transformation. Notice how Jesus said to these men, I will make you become fishers of men. I will make you become. So Jesus would actually do the work, right? Right? He, he would turn them into disciples who made disciples. He would make them into kingdom-minded people. Like slowly, over time, through a process, Jesus made these rough-edged fishermen into world-changing apostles. What an amazing thing. If that doesn't give hope to you and I, I don't know what does. But then both sets of these brothers that we see in the story, they immediately leave their businesses behind and they follow Jesus. And there's so much that we can elaborate on in these passages. 
Um, we could talk about how they left their careers. We could focus on the fact that James and John and, and likely even Peter and Andrew um, also left their families. Um, I, I could try to demonstrate that this is a decision that we have to make once and for all, but, but it's not. It's like an everyday decision that we continue to make to place our lives in Jesus' hands, to form ourselves into his likeness and his image. But I want to close with this one simple point, this one thing. This was the best decision of their entire lives. It changed everything. And I'm sure there were moments that they doubted. I'm sure there were moments that they questioned. This is hard. The rest of my friends are doing X, Y, Z. Man, Jesus, you're really, you're really leaving us high and dry at times, calling us into things that may get us killed, would eventually get us killed. But decades later, with the fruit that their lives bore, and the thousands of changed lives that existed in their wake, they would have confessed that they made the best decision ever. They, they would have pointed to this moment as this turning point in their life towards all that was good in their existence. They would have remembered that day as the one that they departed Caesar's kingdom and entered into Jesus's. That they left behind the Pax Romana that was this failed attempt at peace to actually have true peace in the life of Christ. They became real partners with each other and real followers of Jesus that day. And nothing would ever be the same. And so I pray for us that we would decide to walk in, to breathe in the dust, to be caked in the dust of our rabbi, King Jesus, amen? Billy Graham said this, he said, being a Christian is more than just an instantaneous conversion. It's a daily process whereby you grow to be more and more like Christ. I'm sick of living in a day and age where following Jesus is all about an instantaneous conversion and not about the ongoing work of following him each and every day of our life. I want to close by doing something different just for a few minutes and uh, the worship team will come up here in a couple minutes. But I want you guys to get in groups of four. Um, find people. Get in groups of four. And... Um, these moments, these kind of interactive moments in our service, I think are a time for the church to be the church. And so instead of me saying, come up here for prayer, um, I want you to actually pray for one another. And so we're going to take just a four, um, just real quickly, if you could just spout out, like, can you pray for this? Can you pray for this? And then just get to praying. You know, it's not like, don't tell us your 30-minute story and your saga of the whole week. And like, we get it. Just tell us what you need prayer for. And spend three or four minutes praying for one another. And then we're going to sing a song together and we'll close the service. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to reach out to us or see what we currently have going on as a church, head to AnthemCDA.com or find us on social media at AnthemCDA. We can't wait to see you next week.